My name is Ryan Hamby. I have the privilege of uh, being on staff here with Salt Company, our college ministry, for the past couple years. And uh, yeah, I am just honored to be here preaching the word to you guys this morning. I've lived here a really long time. There's a lot of new faces as I stand by the doors that I don't know. So if we have not met, please come say hello to me. Uh, I would love to get to know you. Uh, But let's dive right in today, guys. We are starting a new uh, little mini-series, if you will, for the next three weeks called Old Testament Heroes. Okay, Old Testament Heroes. Pretty much the idea behind this, uh, as we kind of get ready for our big summer series, is that we want to spend some time with some people in the Old Testament who maybe don't get as much airtime as normal, right? People that maybe we've heard of or we've seen VeggieTales movies about, but we don't really know everything about them. And so the goal is pretty simple. We want to make some new friends. We want to see how God shows up in their stories. And ultimately, we want to leave encouraged uh, together for sure every single week. So this morning, we're going to jump into the story of a guy named Gideon. Gideon, okay? Maybe you've uh, heard about him. His story is actually very, very interesting. Um, it's really, really important, I think. It's definitely important that we, that we go there together. Um, if you haven't read the book of Judges before, if that's maybe not where the name sounds familiar from, maybe Hebrews 11, right? Maybe you guys have read Hebrews 11, also known as the Hall of Faith for some Christianese for you right there. The Hall of Faith, where uh, pretty much if you made it into the Hall of Faith, if your name is written down in Hebrews 11, you made it. Right, like, like you must have been somebody pretty darn important in the Old Testament if you made it into the Hall of Faith, and Gideon is in there. It actually says that we don't even have time to go into the story of Gideon and all these other people, and so today we're actually going to take the time to go into the story of Gideon, because I'm sure we're all just so curious. Um, he must have done something right. And the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 11, defines this idea of faith like this, right? That's the reality of what is hoped for. It's the proof of what is not seen. Faith, the hallmark of this guy Gideon's life is defined by faith. And the reason faith matters is it goes on in 11.2, by this, by our faith, our ancestors, these people in the Old Testament that we're gonna be studying, by this faith, God approved of them. Let that sink in for a second. Not by all the great works they did or the religion they kept necessarily or how they treat, by their faith. The God of the universe, the creator of everything, Yahweh, the righteous judge who lets no sin go unpunished, who is absolutely right in all of his dealings with us, he approves of someone with faith like this. And so what's kind of at stake this morning, kind of the tension that I feel, is that what's true about Hebrews 11, what's true about the the days of the judges where Gideon was, is the exact same thing that's true today. If we are to be approved by the God of the universe, there is nothing that we need besides this type of faith. It's not some cute Christian accessory or something we add to our religion. This is our only hope to win God's approval. That's what's at stake this morning. And so here we are with one of these quote-unquote heroes of faith. You're going to see why I put it in quotes. It's kind of an ironic title because really does the Bible have that many heroes? Not exactly. 
Okay, so here we are with Gideon, one of these heroes of the faith, a man who had such a faith that he won God's approval. He has something to say to us today. So my question this morning is pretty simple. If Gideon were actually here, humor me, if Gideon were here, what would he want to preach to us? Like, what would Gideon's big idea of his life be if he were to give his life message to us? And I think it'd be really, really simple. I think it would be this. Living by faith is always worth it. Trust me. That's what he would say. It's, it's a, we're going to unpack that, but he would say, living by faith is always worth it. Trust me. And we do well to help prove that idea by asking three questions this morning from his story. One, what type of people live by faith? Two, what does living by faith actually look like? And three, where does living by faith lead to? Okay, so if you guys would open your Bibles to Judges chapter six, we're going to cover a lot of Bible and a lot of storytelling here, but I think it's all very, very important. And uh, Definitely strap in for a roller coaster that is Gideon's life, okay? So Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 11, we're picking up a story where God's people are being oppressed. If you have read Judges before, you know the pattern is uh, pretty exhausting of just God's people disobeying. A neighboring country or an enemy comes in and oppresses them, kind of takes over, and God raises up these people called judges, these warriors or these rulers who free them from the oppression and gives them a period of rest all before, you guessed it, God's people disobey and it happens again and again and again. So here we are and we are at the peak of the Midianites oppressing Gideon's people. Verse 11 says this, the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belongs to Joash the Abiezrite. His son, Gideon, was threshing wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites because the Midianites were coming and stealing all their food. So whatever food he had, he was hiding it. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Wow, what an incredible thing to hear. What an incredible title to receive right off the bat. Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my father's family but I will be with you. The Lord said to him, you will strike Midian down as if it were one man. Then he said to him, if I have found favor with you, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. And the Lord said, okay, I'll stay till you return. And what happens next is Gideon goes and he is just repetitively trying to get his place, his faith to a place of actually believing what God's telling him. God has showed up. He has made some big promises. He has called him valiant warrior and told him, you are going to deliver your people from the Midianites. And pretty much Gideon's response is, prove it. No way, not me. You got the wrong guy, God. And so what happens next is Gideon goes and he prepares a meal. He's trying to like almost win the favor of this messenger, of the Lord over. He's like, please, I'm just going to try and make you happy, even with the small meal I bring. And what happens? Well, if you keep reading, the angel of the Lord lights it on fire and leaves. <laughs> Essentially saying, I don't need your offering. What I've spoken will come to pass. And Gideon freaks out. 
he realizes, oh my goodness, I think I just came in contact, face-to-face contact with the holy God of Israel. I should be dead. But God shows up and says, no, 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 peace. Peace, Gideon. Don't worry. I'm still with you. But before we get to this conquering of Midian, we got to take care of some spiritual elements and your people and my people. And so he tells Gideon to do something. He tells him, go into the village and tear down all of the idols. The altars to Baal, tear them down. The ones that belong to your father and your people, tear them down and build me an altar. And Gideon is terrified. He's so scared. Like idol worship was so ingrained in his people that he was afraid of their backlash. So he sneaks out in the middle of the night because he doesn't want anybody to see him. And he tears them down. And the next morning, the town goes into a frenzy and finds out Gideon is responsible for tearing down their idol worship and they want to kill him. And luckily, Gideon's father steps in and says, no, let Baal kill him. Like, don't, like, if, if Baal's actually real, he'll take out vengeance. We don't have to touch Gideon. And Gideon is spared. Even in his weakness, even in his fear, he obeyed the Lord here and he calls for his army. He's finally almost mustering up enough courage, enough faith to say, okay, now it's time to go into battle. And his army gathers behind him. Okay, what type of people live by faith? Well, if we're pulling straight from Gideon's story, it would appear that weak and doubting people actually are the people who live by faith. What do I mean? Okay, well, as we open the story, do you feel a little bit underwhelmed by him? I definitely do. The word hero is uh, not really off to a great start. He's incredibly underwhelming. It's not faith that seems to define his life, but it's actually doubt. It appears to be weak people that God seems to be calling. The Lord meets him. Look, and he complains. He tells him that there's no way he should pick him. The Lord promises to him, and he repeatedly asks God, prove it to me. The Lord asks him to do something with him, and he moves, almost crippled with fear in the middle of the night. But I think this is great. I think this is great. I think God is doing something on purpose here, something that he loves to do. Even when it comes to calling his followers, this God doesn't call people who are immune from doubt. Do you believe that? Like God doesn't call people for their great faith. He doesn't call people who are immune from the disease of doubt. No, this God loves to call people who are simply in need of him, doubt and all, whatever you bring to the table. Gideon was not a man of impressive faith. Obviously, he was a man of impressive doubt. But this is actually the secret of living a life of faith, guys. You're just in need. It starts right there. It starts by being a person who is simply in need. You know what? Gideon had some pretty serious reasons to doubt. He had some pretty serious uh, grounds for argument and complaining, I think. There's no way that he can see God's plan that he actually, the youngest of his family, of the smallest tribe, is actually going to liberate God's people from these oppressors. He should be scared. And I love it. God doesn't hand him a step-by-step blueprint of what his plans are going to be. He doesn't tell him every single next step like Google Maps and say, all right, this is what you're going to do. You should take comfort in that. No, no. He one-ups him. He gives him something even better. And in verse 16, you can see what he gives him. He gives him himself. He says, I will be with you. Okay, if a starving man walked into a steakhouse, if a starving man walked into a steakhouse, what would you 
what would you give him? What would you say that that person needs? Like a menu of all of his options? Like a, like a nutritional value pamphlet? Like something that explains to him all the reasons that steak is good for him? A diagram of how his body might like digest and use the nutrients? No, not at all. You'd give that man a rare T-bone pronto. You'd give it to him quick. This is the man of faith. You're hungry. You're desperate. And my point is this. If you're, if you're here and you have doubt, like you came in that door today and maybe this is your first time at church in a long time, or maybe you've been here too long almost and you're starting to like, doubt is starting to freak you out a little bit that you never really knew existed inside of you. I wanna tell you this, that you are not disqualified from living a life of faith. In fact, you actually might be more primed and ready as anybody here in the room this morning. Isn't that cool? Why? Because you're in need. And when you're in need, God shows up. And really, I hope that's all of us. I hope that we all kind of have to face our doubts at times. I hope that we all have to come face to face with our doubt, but we actually step in the ring. We get ready to fight. We get ready to wrestle with it. And it's not like God likes doubt. Don't, don't hear me say that. God obviously does not like doubt, but this God is so gracious that he is gracious enough to meet us where we are and lead us through our doubt. Friends, living by faith is not a life that says, I now know everything about this God. All the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. I have no more questions, no. It's a life that says, I believe God will be with me through everything. That's the life of faith. There's so much delight. Oh my goodness, there's so much delight in living a life of leaning into, like learning at the king's feet asking him questions, getting to know him, bringing those hard uh, things that our minds can barely over and learning and hearing him and like getting with God's people and having those things explained. There's so much delight in that life. But the best part is not the ascent of knowledge. It's getting to know God better. It's getting to be with him in a more intimate way. And let Gideon teach us something today that the life of faith is reserved for the weak, for those who are in need, for those even who might have doubt that God is not calling us necessarily from a place of great faith, Veritas. But perhaps he's calling us to a place of great faith today. And his method of doing so is calling us to live a life with him. And I think Gideon would say, oh man, it is absolutely worth it. So what will that life look like? Weak people are the type that are ready to live by faith, but what will that life actually look like? Well, let's pick up Gideon's story in chapter seven. This is when it gets real spicy, all right? This is maybe the story you've heard of. It gets super weird. But this is what chapter seven, verses one through seven say. Jerubal, that is Gideon, a name they gave him, and all the troops who were with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them below the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them. What? Let me read that again. You have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, my own strength saved me. Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back 
and 10,000 remained. Talk about letting the air out. Like, that would be so discouraging. Like, all right, is anybody in here afraid? All right, just go. And 22,000 people leave. Gideon's got to be freaking out. But then the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many troops. It's like, shoot. Um, Okay, uh, take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths was 300 men. Okay, good. So he's going to get rid of those 300. And all the rest of the troops knelt to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men. Uh-oh. Who lapped, and hand, who lapped the water and hand the Midianites over to you, but everyone else is to go home. This is a terrible strategy so far. God has whittled down his massive army to 300 men. Gideon was already in a shaky place of his faith. Uh, I don't know what he's feeling right now. But he doesn't have much time to think about it because God tells him that night, it's go time. Rally the troops. We are going to storm the camp. A camp of how many? Like 135,000? It describes later as the camels in the camp. It looked like the sand of a seashore. There's that many camels. People that looked like locusts. There were so many, like a plague of locusts covering this valley. And he's saying, all right, tonight's the night. But God knew. God knows who he's dealing with here. A weak man of doubt. And he says, but if you're afraid, I'll throw you a bone. Why don't you go with a buddy? Sneak into their camp and just kind of spy on them for a night. Kind of get a feel for the place. And maybe you're going to hear something that will encourage you. In fact, you will. And so Midian accepts the pity, I guess, and out of his fear, takes a buddy and goes and kind of listens in on a conversation of two guards. And I kid you not, this is such an interesting part of the story. One of the guards just starts describing a dream he had the previous night. A weird dream about a loaf of bread coming and just like destroying a bunch of things. Really odd. And for some reason, the Midianite buddy who's with him goes, oh, your dream can only mean one thing. Gideon is going to destroy all of us. And Gideon's got to be listening to this on the other side of the wall thinking, what in the world? How did he get the loaf of bread rolling into town being me and my 300 men destroying all their people? But I'll take it. And he was encouraged. And he was full of faith, finally. And he goes and he rallies the troops, says, boys, it's go time. Grab a torch in your one hand, cover it with like like a pot and grab a trumpet in the other hand. You notice that doesn't leave much room for swords and weapons. But they, they uh, circle around the camp in the valley, on top of the valley. And they do something that is just so brilliant. They smash the pots. And so all of a sudden, boom, 300 torches just turn on. Like somebody just turned the lights on at the Midianite camp. And they all start blowing their trumpets and screaming, for Gideon and for the Lord. And I don't know what happened whether they thought there was armies behind all 300 torches, but it put the Midianites into such a frenzy that they didn't just go up and kill Gideon like maybe they could have. They started running around and killing each other. They were so like confused and so scared that they started killing each other and just ran away. And Gideon had victory. And for the rest of chapter 8, 
Gideon and his army and friends from other places are coming and pursuing and realizing, enjoying the victory that God had given them. Crazy stuff. And so what does living by faith look like? That's the question we're asking from that story. Obviously for us, it's not gonna look just like this. God's probably not calling us or has not called us to do anything close to what Gideon is doing. But if Gideon were here and, we were answer- and he was answering that question, he would say simply this. Living by faith looks like obedience. It looks like obedience. Like we know that a life of faith is not necessarily disproved by our doubts, but it is disproved by our disobedience. Faith in action looks like obedience. The only question is, can we trust the God that is telling us to do these things and obey him? Could Gideon trust this God? We can see here, it's not God asking Gideon to understand everything, to explain his strategies for battle. He's simply asking him to obey. Why? Why does God do this, Gideon? Why do we feel that so often in our own lives? Because God knows something very, very true and very, very good. It's that his promises are more valuable than our understanding and our reasoning. Let me say that again. His promises, God's promises, what he says is even more valuable than our understanding. When God says something, it happens. Whether it be let there be light and boom, from nothing there was light, or Midian is mine and they are going down. God brings Gideon to a place where if he doesn't show up, if God doesn't show up, all is lost, game over. Surely Gideon is confused. Surely he can't explain to his men. They've gotta be the most confused. Surely he can't explain to his men exactly how this is gonna go down, but he has something better than a game plan. He has the Lord's words that God is with us and he has made a promise to me. You see, living by faith is not mainly about the strength or the impressiveness of our faith, right? Like this isn't a time for us to become like really like a self-evaluating, if you will, like to take a good hard look in the mirror and say, all right, how's my faith doing? How do I strengthen my... Faith isn't actually really about the strength of our faith. It's actually mainly about the strength of who we put our faith in. Does that make sense? What God says in verse two when he said that you have too many troops. Why does he say that? Lest Israel elevate themselves and think that by their own power they did this. No, no, no. This was no strategy for battle. This was a strategy for glory. A strategy for God to be made much of. And when we put our faith in this God, that is what is happening. God is receiving the glory and we are free to obey him as we take him at his word. Because living by faith is not about our understanding the facts or the ways or the path as much as it is our knowing personally this good and gracious God. I think if Gideon were to preach his life sermon today, he probably wouldn't talk about his own faith much at all. You know, he'd talk about how great his God is the God that he put his faith in, and he would beg us to do the same and follow in obedience. Okay, college ministry is hilarious. Let me take a side here. College ministry is so funny, and I think um, this year has obviously been a little weird. We couldn't do any of our fun retreats or our 
conference or anything like that. So we had to have fun somehow, right? And uh, I mean, it's fun every week, but we had to do something really fun. So we had the brilliant idea. I don't know whose idea it was. I'll take the blame for it. The brilliant idea, hey, let's just get in a car and go to the Ozarks. Okay, cool. So we rent a camp that none of us on staff had ever been to in the Ozarks. And we get in a 15-passenger van, and we're like, all right, sure. I'm sure like no students come. No, about 120 students signed up to come, and they were hot on our tails. And we're driving down to the Ozarks to a place that we have never been to do what? Not totally sure. To sleep where? Not totally sure, but I think some people were bringing tents. And I start to get this crazy bit of anxiety in me. I'm like, oh my goodness. I might be leading people into the worst decision ever made in salt company history. <laughs> this is so stupid. Like, sure, we had a little bit of plan, but not much. And we're driving down there, and I just stopped talking after all because I got so anxious. I was like, dude, I'm going to get fired. I just messed up. This is somebody's going to get hurt. I don't even know where we're going. Ugh. And we get there, and I realize everybody brought a tent. Nobody wanted to sleep inside. And so there is a field of tents. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a problem. Why? Because we got hit by a tsunami that night. I don't know if it was a literal one, but it's got to be as close to a tsunami as Missouri can get. And tents were getting shredded. Tent covers ripped apart and thrown across the yard. Waking up in puddles, standing water. Me too. So I got to taste my own medicine. It was awful, but it was great. And my takeaway from all that was not, hey, don't do this again, because we actually had a lot of fun, believe it or not. My take like that I'm still chewing on from that stupid but wonderful Ozarks trip was I would make a terrible God. Like it is so weird. Have you ever been in a, a spot of leadership or anything where somebody just like takes your word for it and you realize what were they thinking? Why didn't they ask more questions? Why would they trust me? And I just had this weird, like, over-spiritualized moment of thankfulness coming back from the Ozarks, like, A, I'm glad that went well, but B, I'm so glad that people don't actually have to live by faith in me because I would make a terrible God. And so my point of even saying all that is pretty simple. You can have a ton of faith, but if you put it towards the wrong person or the wrong thing, it is completely forfeit. But the whole point of this story is God proving himself over and over again that he is worthy to put 1,000% of your faith in. You can't have too much faith in this God that when he speaks, it happens. And we can cling and should and need to cling to his promises as if they were our very life. This is what living by faith looks like. Obedience. Obedience that doesn't ignore doubt, but wages war, gets in the ring with our doubt. And so what does it look like now for us to live in obedient faith? Obviously not putting ourselves too much in the shoes of getting here, but what can we do? And this is where I had a ton of fun prepping this message. This is where it's like, okay, let's just open our Bibles. And this thing is chock full of God's promises to us. I remember one time, a long time ago, Mark just started calling people out in the crowd and saying, what are your favorite promises of God? Let's go. And so this morning, we're no, we're not going to do that again. Sorry, it made me super nervous because he called on me that day and I just hid. He's like, Ryan, you go. And I just sunk into my chair. I didn't want to be called on. But I had the privilege just to sit here and think, what are like the three hardest to believe promises 
That if I actually believe these, if I actually put my faith in this God and his word, this would change my life forever. Okay, here they are. Pretty random. Is anybody in here their own worst critic? Is anybody in here just consistently disappointing yourself? And you're just like always kind of mad at yourself? Okay, maybe I'm the only one. But get this, Romans 5, 8 is absolutely wonderful. This is the promise of God that I need in moments like that. That God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't it crazy that while we were his enemies, he died for us? And you know what that tells me now? I'm not his enemy. And if he loved me then, oh man, he must really love me now. God approves of me, especially when I don't approve of myself. Thank you, Romans 5, 8. Or how about this one? Anybody terrible at praying in here? Doesn't make any sense to them? Totally. Matthew 21, 22 says, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. I'm telling you, this makes less sense to me than 300 versus 15,000. This makes so little sense to me because this is too good. This is too good, but here we are. Am I gonna take God at his word? I don't know. But I definitely wanna leave here and start praying and see what happens. What a beautiful promise if I can take this God at his word. And finally, finally Revelation 3, 5. Is anybody feeling like they need hope for the future? That maybe the, the good old days are behind them? They've lost out on a lot of missed time. Well, Revelation 3, 5 says, in the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. And I will never erase his name from the book of life, but I'll acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Guys, there is a time coming when we will not struggle with doubt at all anymore. All of, our, uh, all of our sin will be literally separated from us completely forever as a distant memory. And all of our best days are ahead of us. A lot of us need to hear that this year for sure. This is living by faith. It's taking what God says as the certain truth and providing, improving our faith by obedience. It's definitely not a comfortable life, but it's a life of faith that Gideon would say it's absolutely worth it. But the final question as we land this plane is where in the world is this life of faith leading us? Okay, and I want to read, seems like a whiplash part of this story. Chapter 8, verse 22, you can see it's titled Gideon's Legacy. And what we can expect to read is beautiful. Gideon had it all together. He kept conquering. He lived a life of faith. And here we go. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, after he'd done all these great things, rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son won't rule over you. Wow, he's so humble. The Lord will rule over you. He said to them, let me make a request of you. Everyone, give me an earring from his plunder. I'm going to skip down. They agreed to give him, and he makes this thing called an ephod. Whether it's to be worshipped or not, we actually don't know. But in verse 27, it says that all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it. They made something so beautiful that they actually started to worship it. And it became a snare to Gideon and his household. And so Midian was subdued before the Israelites. They had their peace. They were no longer a threat. 
They had peace for 40 years during the days of Gideon. Then Gideon went back to live in his house. He had 70 sons of his own offspring. How did he do that? Well, it says he had so many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Then Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash and Ophrah, the Abizirites. When Gideon died, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves by worshiping the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hand of the enemies around them. They did not show kindness to the house of Gideon for all the good he had done for Israel. This is one confusing legacy as we end. This is how I would sum up the story of Gideon. At the beginning, Gideon had doubts and he had faith. Now he has neither. At the beginning, we had a man who was put in an impossible situation and he doubted, sure, he wrestled, but he ultimately obeyed and saw God show up in wonderful ways. Now at the end, we have a man who grew comfortable, bored, and disobedient. Idol worship, polygamy, and sin seems to be the final stamp on our hero's life. If the life of faith is a fight, I think Gideon had stepped out of the ring completely. And so the final question is, what do we do with Hebrews 11? Where we started, right? This hall of faith, our hero, one to be remembered. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile this conflict of legacies? And so if Gideon were on stage with me again, humor me please, and we could interview him, I think we know exactly what he would say. Okay, so here's the transcript from said interview, me interviewing our buddy here. So Gideon, you really seem to mess this up, man. The idol worship, the polygamy, what happened? It seems like the author of Hebrews kind of ignores the end of your life. Like, what's up with that? Oh, man, he would say. I'm just as blown away as you are. I got to heaven, and nobody seems to have brought this up yet. Okay, well, what do you have to say for yourself? Why should we at Veritas here be preaching about you? Honestly, you probably shouldn't. Well, we are, so give us something. Okay, here's something, he would say. Here's the legacy of my life. I think my story can be read two different ways. The first, more kind of optimistic, bright side type of perspective. And it goes like this. An unexpected man, an impossible task, and God-given victory. Sounds pretty good. And that's so true. But there's also the perspective that I see more a little darker perspective on my legacy, and it's this, a man of doubt, blessed beyond belief, but continually failing to respond appropriately to his God. And you know what's crazy? I say what? God seems to only see me by this first legacy. The one defined completely by what he did. And so I guess if you had to preach about me, you had better preach about what he did and how my story ultimately points to him, the God of the universe hanging on a cross. Jesus, the unexpected man, with the impossible task of defeating sin and redefining my legacy, and guess what? He did it. 
He accomplished what I failed to do. He has victory and he plans to share it with whoever puts their faith in him, however small it may be. And oh man, it is totally worth it. Trust me. Veritas, where does living a life of faith lead to? It leads to the cross where God accomplished everything. Right, the cross, that is our stamp of approval for all of eternity. As Jesus was counted as a sinner up there for us. All of our doubt, all of our lack of faith, he bore that on himself on the cross for us. And so let the cross be where we find our faith together, guys. And will we never, never leave the cross? Because let's be real, we're a people who struggle with doubt more than we should. We're a people who cannot be obedient no matter how hard we try as we know we ought to be, but God is mighty and he is gracious to save and ask even this morning for our weakest faith that we can muster up so that he can give us everything of himself and we can be with him today and forever. Guys, let's pray. Yeah, Father, I just want to confess a very self-centered, me-centered approach to my faith. Where faith is something that I work on. It's something that I want to show to people. It's something that I think is almost just like this, uh, like this bar to measure up to. But God, my faith is all about you. God, would faith be less like a New Year's resolution and a, and a setting of goals for Veritas Church, but would Veritas Church just be obsessed with the cross? The, this gracious and God, this powerful God who is mighty to save, would our faith be so just in love with you that we're even confident to bring our doubts? We're confident to wrestle through those things because you are with us. You're here this morning. You're ready for whatever we can throw at you, God. And so please ignite us, stir in us, hearts of faith and a culture of faith that is ready to see you do wonderful things just like we saw in Gideon, God. Thank you for seeing us as you see your son, Jesus.